Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in History. I'm Carla Nappi, usually the host of New Books in East Asian Studies and the co-host of New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, but I'm popping in today to guest host New Books in History. I recently had a great time talking with Anthony Bale about his brand new translation of a classic text that's one that's well known to historians and certainly to those of us who work on early modern and medieval history, and that is Sir John Mandeville's The Book of Marvels and Travels. Oxford University Press just released this new translation in a really beautiful paperback edition in 2012. Now, over the course of our discussion, we talked about a lot of aspects, not just of this really exciting and rich and fascinating and important text, but also aspects of the craft of the translator and and of um, Anthony himself in going through the process of not just deciding that he would do um, a translation of this work, a new translation of this work, but actually struggling through some of the really, um, really interesting problems that emerge when you're trying to create a translation of a text that exists in multiple languages and multiple editions, many of which are very, very different. So in the course of the interview, you'll hear us talking about foreskin. You'll hear us talking about alphabets and measurements and perhaps dragons and things like that. There's some really wonderful um, accounts in the book that raise very interesting case studies for the translator and also are very interesting to read um, just as a reader. And you'll also hear us talking about sort of uh, issues of how to choose a particular edition to base one's translation on and sort of what um, what went into deciding to not just create a certain kind of readability in the text, but also situate this text within a framework of a kind of proto-cultural relativism or proto-cosmopolitanism. It was a really fascinating discussion. It's a wonderful book, and I hope you enjoy. Good morning, Anthony. Good morning. We're here today to talk with Anthony Bale about his wonderful new translation of Sir John Mandeville's The Book of Marvels and Travels. Welcome to New Books in History, Anthony, and thanks so much for making the time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course. And we're here, um, also I should put in a plug, we're here um, talking at the National Humanities Center um, right now. So we have the, the great benefit of being able to talk in person, which is super fun. So, Anthony, could you start us off a little bit by telling us about your background? What's your typical research focus, and what do you work on when you're not working on translating Mandeville? Well, my background in kind of disciplinary terms is in medieval English literature, middle English literature. So, basically, writing from the from the British Isles from the 13th to the 15th centuries. Um, and my research interest has been in popular religion and narratives um, concerning the representation of um, Jews in Christian sources um, and um, chronicles and um, saints' lives. And so the kind of literature of popular belief, you might call it, in later medieval England. Um, And I got interested in Mandeville for lots of different reasons, partly through thinking about his 
writing about Jews, which is a very interesting part of his book, um, and also through really trying to think about what the world looked like to a 14th century French or English um, audience um, and where they saw themselves in terms of um, religious community um, and other religions. So, yeah, um, my background, I guess, is interdisciplinary, but I came to this as an editor from a literary background um, and thinking about audience, belief, manuscripts, um, reading habits, readership patterns, that kind of thing. Now, this is a text that does exist, or it did exist already prior to your translation Mm -hmm. in some other versions. So as a translator, can you talk a little bit about why you decided or how you came to decide that um, you wanted to do a new translation and what makes this translation perhaps importantly different from translations that you had worked with in the past? Well, um, that's a very hard question to answer. (laughs) I think there's, there's both the perspective of why I wanted to do the translation as a scholar and what that kind of gives to the, to the audience. Um, for me, I'd done an edition of a very long um, Middle English text a couple of years ago, John Lydgate's Lives of St. Saint, Saint Edmund and Freeman. Um, and I've really enjoyed doing that. I've really enjoyed the forensic detail you can get into when you're editing something, when you're working with manuscript traditions and thinking about these really tiny um, cruises about how you're going to edit something or how you're going to, what decisions you're going to make, which then open up huge big issues about the actual text and the integrity of the text. So there was a lot of pleasure in doing that kind of, um, yeah, um, forensic work um, in editing a text. I think in terms of Mandeville, I wanted to make an edition which opened up the text to a non-specialist audience um, and because it has a lot to offer to historians, to art historians, um, to historians of religion, as well as to scholars of Middle English and, and Middle French um, writing. So I wanted something which would be approachable and would have the kinds of notes and apparatus that would help a reader who perhaps wasn't that familiar with the literary culture in which Mandeville was writing come to the text. And also where somebody, say, who's interested in 14th century Palestine or 15th century China would be able to get something from this text rather than it being focused so much on the um, original context of it. Um, So there was a challenge for me, which I really enjoyed, um, of trying to write in an idiomatic modern English using the Middle English and Middle French texts I was working with. Um, And I hope that I've produced a readable and very approachable text, which makes this um, makes this really rich resource available to a wide audience. Um, In terms of other editions, I sought to here to provide notes which would which would really be helpful to as many people as possible and and not and tried not to be as scholarly as we're often trained to be, um, which is very difficult. Um, and also, um, so much has been done on Mandeville's um, kind of the background of the text and our changing critical perspectives in terms of post-colonialism, 
world history um, and kind of cultural relativism in the last kind of 10 or 15 years that I thought it was time that there was a new edition of the text which you know, with an introduction and notes which brought some of these issues to the to the forefront um, but ultimately I mean and my plug would be that I think it's a fascinating text and more people should read it and the more available it is the better it's also a very important text in the history of ideas of the world of wonders travel discovery and you know um, it has a really foundational place in European perspectives of of how the world what the world was let's let's talk a little bit more about that because one of the things um, I think I can speak for many colleagues and many teachers who teach anything having to do with um, history of uh, the world, global history, history of travel. Um, when I say that Mandeville is a text that is uh, at least assigned in part in lots and lots of courses, I've assigned parts of this um, so many times when I've taught world history or history of the early modern world, history of travel. And it's um, one of the things I'll say for listeners in case, um, since this just came out, in case listeners haven't yet had an opportunity to see this particular edition is that it's super assignable. It's got a great, super um, helpful introduction, which we'll talk about. The notes are great. It's a nice, comfortable paperback. Um, and this is something that I can imagine, and not just can I imagine, but I anticipate um, assigning actually as the full version to students for many years to come. So it's super assignable and it's a great pedagogical resource in addition to being great fun Thank you. reading, um, great fun just to read. But how um, you just mentioned that this is one of the things that interested you is um, the wide applicability of this mm -hmm. for lots of different mm -hmm. fields. So can you talk a little bit more about that, um, especially for listeners who may not yet know about this text, who may not ever have had an opportunity to read or read about Mandeville, what makes this text um, important? Sort of what, what's important about this? And can you give sort of a, in the course of that, a brief overview of what's the text about? Okay. <laughs> so these are big questions. Yeah. So basically the text is, as the title I chose, The Book of Marvels and Travels. It's a compilation of narratives about wonder, miracles, and um, what it is to travel from England, where the narrator says he sets out from, all the way as far as um, Java, um, the, the east of China, um, and Sumatra, so to the Far East. Um, and it's a, and it's, that's basically the narrative. Um, and the, the thrust of the text the first half of the text is the journey from England to Jerusalem, and the second half of the text is more discursive, and it's kind of wandering around Asia um, and on the way to paradise. So that's the basic narrative. It's a man telling us about his travels. Um, and in the course of those travels, he travels through Europe, to Egypt, um, through Persia, Arabia, um, spends lots of time in Turkey and Palestine, um, and then through um, various places which um, are often kind of said to have been India and Sri Lanka and um, Southeast Asia. But after he goes past Jerusalem, the world becomes more kind of miraculous, marvellous, um, and perhaps less um, focused on Christian um, sites and more focused on sites of curiosity and fantasy. So that's the kind of overview. The um, the text um, emerged in 
Northern Europe, in France, Flanders and England in the 1350s and 1360s. We don't know exactly where it came from or indeed who the author was, and I can talk about that in more detail in due course. Um, but by the 1370s, it was incredibly popular um, and widely read, and it remained so through the um, late 14th and 15th centuries. Um, we have at least 300 manuscripts surviving in various languages, including English, French, Catalan, Danish, Gaelic, Latin, um, Bohemian. There's all, you know, it was very widespread throughout Europe. And um, if we imagine that we only have 5 or 10% of the surviving medieval manuscripts today, which is kind of what the rule of thumb is, then that means there were thousands of manuscripts of Mandeville circulating. And it was also printed um, in the late 15th century in several different editions. So it was a bestseller um, in, in its day. One of the things that is most important about it for a modern readership is that there's not that much in the book that's original to Mandeville in the sense that he had read very widely and taken his accounts of um, Europe, Asia, Middle East from other people's accounts in general, but he was the first person to put them together in this way and crucially, and what made his text very um, popular, is that he did this in the vernacular, in French, Anglo-French, and English. So, so he took lots of monastic learning, which, which had previously been only available in Latin, um, and to monks, and then he translated this and rearranged it and compiled it, which is really what a medieval author does. They kind of don't write anything but very much that's original. It's more the way you reorder other authoritative texts, and he, he compiled it in a new way, in a way which then um, became uh, attractive to readers of French and English. So these were courtly readers. Um, we know that the French and English court was reading Mandeville in the late 14th and early 15th century. Um, it might include um, lay readers. For instance, one of the manuscripts um, that I looked at um, was owned by a grocer in London, um, and two women um, wrote their names in it, both called Alice. Um, and so they weren't your traditional monastic readers by any means. It was also read by monks, and we know that it was owned by various monasteries and religious houses in Europe. So it could be um, it could be attractive and um, uncontroversial, I think, to a very wide range of audiences and accessible to, to a very wide range of audiences. Now, one of the things that makes it so important to us, partly is this popularity, um, but then that popularity in turn means that it becomes a foundational text in the era of discovery, or you know, what's often called the age of discovery. Um, so it's, it's a cliche, but it's true. This, the Mandeville's Travels, um, Christopher Columbus's son says that, Matt, that Christopher Columbus had a copy of Mandeville's Travels on that famous journey he made um, across the Atlantic. Um, Leonardo da Vinci had a copy of Mandeville in his library. Um, Chaucer had almost certainly read Mandeville. We see elements of that in parts of the Canterbury Tales. Shakespeare had probably read Mandeville. Um, Thomas More, in thinking about Utopia, had, I'm, I'm very confident, had um, read a version of Mandeville. So these um, voices of kind of modernity, if you like, um, and the, and the, 
birth of the early modern worldview were, I think, often profoundly influenced by Mandeville's worldview. One of the things worth pointing out, I think, for an English, in terms of English readership, is that bits of Mandeville, Mandeville's book, got incorporated into other texts. So things like Hacklet's um, Principal Voyages, which was, you know, the main um, Elizabethan travel narrative, um, has bits of Mandeville in it. Lots of pilgrimage texts, even from pilgrims who we know went to Jerusalem, took bits of Mandeville verbatim. So Mandeville finds, Mandeville's book finds its way into other media. Um, I should perhaps say something at this point about the title I chose. Um, like most medieval texts, the book doesn't really have a title in its manuscripts. It's often called um, the Book of Mandeville or Mandeville's um, book or something like that. You know, it's, it's not called, it doesn't have a standard title. But in modern editions, people have tended to call it the Book of Travels or Mandeville's Travels. Um, and I chose the title, The Book of Marvels and Travels, because it's often the marvels that medieval manuscript um, headings or titles bring out, not the travels. Um, the travels are a kind of vehicle for the marvels. You have to travel to visit the marvels, but really it's the marvels that the text is interested in, and that's true all the way from Mandeville's accounts of Greece um, and and actually and various um, saints' relics in Europe that he talks about all the way to um, Beijing. And so he... he um, it's, I felt that the Book of Travels was putting the text into a very modern and contemporary frame of the travel narrative. And people have always written travel narratives, but they didn't call them that necessarily. Any pilgrimage narrative is a travel narrative, and, and, and lots of saints' lives are also travel narratives. Um, lots of chronicles are travel narratives. And so I brought back the marvels into the title. Um, you know, it's not so. I mean, something I want to make clear is that both that the title isn't a, isn't medieval. No title is it's really medieval, but it reflects the kinds of title, the kinds of category heading that medieval scribes gave it, where they were interested in both as a book of travels, marvels, or as a life of John Mandeville, as he sometimes called it. And so, I, I that actually is a perfect segue to the next thing I want to ask you. But for I'll just mention briefly. Um, for listeners who might be coming from or interested in East Asian studies, and I'll just say just to mm -hmm. put a, another, just to put a point on the um, your point about, or just to emphasize your point about the wide reach of this text, I've seen mentions of elements that have been identified as originally coming from Mandeville in Chinese early modern Chinese mm -hmm. texts, the vegetable lamb. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it's arguably this, this there was a hugely wide and you know cross link cross language reach of this that even made it into Chinese texts. The vegetable lamb is one of my favorite bits. Yes, me too. <laughs> and actually, medieval artists love the vegetable lamb as well in manuscripts. They had lots of fun. Depicting a vegetable lamb. I, I couldn't. Mm. Um, I loved it so much that I wrote about it in my own book too. I can't mention the vegetable <laughs> lamb on Chinese stuff. Um, so you've mentioned John Mandeville. I know this is um, this is a ridiculously. Uh, it's in some ways a ridiculous question, but mm -hmm. it's an important question, mm -hmm. and it's another large question. Um, John Mandeville. Right. This is um, and so. I'll ask you to talk about the authorship. Who okay. is John Mandeville? Um, and I ask that knowing that who is John Mandeville is actually not necessarily a question that can be answered or that speaks to the yeah. precise 
nature yeah. of the authorship here. So okay. can you talk about John Mandeville and in the context of authorship of this text and okay. how we should understand sure. that? Sure. I mean, the simple answer is that we don't know. And the complicated answer is that we don't know. But <laughs> that might not be the right question to ask. So um, I'll say first who John Mandeville says he is um, and then talk about what that means. So he says that he is a knight, um, John Mandeville, knight of St. Albans in Hertfordshire in the south of England, and that he set off in um, 1322 and came back in 1356, or 1332 and came back in 1366. These dates uh, vary in the manuscript. And he says he set off from St. Albans in 1322 or 1332, went on his travels, and came back in 1356 or 66 via Rome, where he his book was approved by the Pope, and um, and came back to England. Now, there was in the in the kind of um, much of the 20th century a huge critical industry um, in Middle English studies trying to find John Mandeville, um, and lots of reasonably plausible candidates presented themselves. Lots of scholars took Mandeville at his word and went looking in the St. Albans area. Um, and I'll say a little bit about St. Albans in a second. Um, others engaged with competing traditions of who Mandeville was, particularly based on the town of Liège in, um, in Flanders, um, where there was a tomb of Mandeville and there was a local tradition that um, other writers had um, identified themselves as Mandeville. Now, this is an extremely kind of knotty um, critical debate, but to cut a long story short, nobody has definitively identified John Mandeville. What's clear is that the text was, it was circulating from very early on in French, English, and in Anglo-French, so the French of England, so the French that the um, aristocracy um, and um, the kind of cultured classes in England um, read. Um, which of those versions is original is, again, moot, but within a few years of the text emerging in the 1350s, it was circulating in all three languages. Now, for me, this attests to both the bilingualism of medieval England and northern France um, and the traffic in ideas and in books and in people between France and the British Isles at this time. I don't think we need to decide whether it's a French book or an English book. They're, I mean, the, the two, I mean, we're talking kind of slightly false categories there. But Ma the fact remains that Mandeville says he's English. Um, and you do get a strong sense in the book, I think, that he's a Northern European, there's a Northern European perspective. At one point, he talks about two letters that Middle English had, Thorn and Yog and says, you know, we've got these letters in our alphabet and other people don't have them. Um, and, of course, a French person could have known that, but you do get a sense that there's certainly a Northern European perspective on this. Um, but he says he's from St. Albans, and that in itself is a very intriguing place to say he's from, um, because St. Albans was one of was possibly the preeminent monastery in late 14th century England, very wealthy, very um, civilised Benedictine monastery um, with strong connections to the English royal family and um, a very productive and illustrious scriptorium producing all kinds of um, texts, including both chronicles 
um, which are connected to what Mandeville's doing, and World Maps. It's where Matthew Paris had been a monk um, who had made um, huge contributions to the history of mapping in the 13th century and um, and to knowledge about the world, um, including some incredible maps with wonderful animals on them and um, a map of the route from England to Jerusalem. And actually, there are some some uh, close relationships between Matthew Paris's texts and Mandeville's texts. So St. Albans would have been known as a centre for the dissemination of um, knowledge about the world and um, about kind of up-to-date writing. Now, whatever the reality of who Mandeville was in the 1350s, the St. Albans connection was enthusiastically adopted by the monastery there in the 15th century. Um, and actually, when you go into the um, Abbey Cathedral at St. Albans today, which is an incredible building, um, a beautiful building, the first thing one sees is an early modern wall painting of a kind of epitaph to John Mandeville. Yeah. And the cathedral in the 15th century enthusiastically endorsed this idea that Mandeville was one of theirs. Equally so did the people in Liège. They also, you know, so both places had an idea that Mandeville was um, from there. Um, for me, I don't feel it's important that we make any kind of decisions about which Mandeville we have, because this is the narrator that the text asks the audience to engage with, and medieval people happily did. They repeated this idea that he was Sir John Mandeville from St. Albans. Now, that leads on to a slightly different question about um, if we can forget worrying about exactly who John Mandeville was and whether he was English, French, or Flemish. Um, who was if we don't att attach a name to him? Now, it seems to me quite clear that he had access to a monastic library. Whether he was a monk or not, I don't know, but um, the kinds of reading that he'd done, um, he would have had to, um, or either a monastic or a university library, which is essentially a monastic library, he would have had to have a very wide range of learned books at his disposal, um, including both you know, everything from romances um, and um, kind of fables all the way through to books on um, cosmography and um, and um, measurements and and kind of scientific books, if you like. Um, so I think he was, even though he says he spent most of his life as a soldier and mercenary and traveller, I think realistically um, we've got to accept that he probably didn't go that much further than um, his, um, you know, a, a good library um, or a good bookshop. Um, whether he did any travelling or not, obviously that's not for me to say. Um, lots of people, lots of medieval Westerners did go to Jerusalem or to Greece um, and to Italy, and so it's not inconceivable. Obviously it's impossible that he saw most of the marvels that he talks about, because we know that they are both um, marvellous, um, i.e. incredible, but also that they are borrowed from other people's accounts, whether it's from Pliny or from um, 13th and 14th century texts. So what this... I mean, I would prefer to see Mandeville's text not so much... You know, we don't... In literary studies now, author-based criticism isn't the main way we're thinking about this. 
Um, and we don't need to get ourselves upset that we don't have an author. Partly because it's inimical to medieval ways of reading, where often you don't have a named author, or where you do have a named author, a trick's being played on the reader. You know, when they're kind of groping through authority and groping through an authority figure, that's when the text is kind of most playful or least authoritative. So, um, yeah, I think we need to take the medieval reception of Mandeville seriously, that people were happy to accept what we can dismiss as an error or uh, an erroneous attribution. I mean, for instance, he says he went to Rome to see the Pope, but at the time he says he did that, the Pope was residing in Avignon. So, you know, we, we can say, oh, that's, that's wrong, but it's, it's the kind of error which is, in inverted commas, which is repeated and is itself generative, generative of the text, which is a text dealing in true and false reports, playful ideas of witnessing and what you, whether what you see, you know, how what you see is inflected by um, how you frame it. Um, and I think I would take that all the way to the questions about authorship, that Mandeville is a kind of fiction, a playful fiction that we can kind of half engage in, engage with and half um, treat as a, um, as a literary conceit. And this actually brings up um, the issue of one of the uh, big issues or main issues that I wanted to ask you about, um, and we might as well talk about it now, which is the issue of belief. Mm-hmm. Um, how did readers, given that this is a text that really played with these categories of fact and fiction, and this is part of the nature of the text itself, how did readers in um, per- perhaps early modern readers or medieval readers, however you want to answer this issue yeah. of readership, yeah. deal with these issues of facticity or fiction in the text? How do they approach this in terms of belief? Or do you have a sense of that? Yeah, I mean, I think, obviously, belief is an impossible thing for us to... The sincerity of belief is an impossible thing for us to gauge in any precise way about historical subjects. But the signs that people left... In the 15th century, I mean, for instance, one of the manuscripts I was working closely with, which is Queen's College, Oxford, number 383, which is the Middle English manuscript I worked with, along with a Middle French manuscript. Um, and um, in that manuscript, the marginalia gives us a sense of what medieval people at least found interesting. And at two points, the medieval reader writes nota bene, writes a kind of attention sign, um, and their points about the rebuking Christians for their failings when you look at how Muslims or other people um, conduct themselves. So it's kind of a, a solipsistic way of reading where you read about other races and other religions in order to um, teach yourself a lesson. Um, but in that same manuscript, it was clearly also read for information, for learning. So at the, at the, there's one point where Mandeville gives a, an account of the roundness of the world and, and of the firmament um, and how, you know, contrary to what modern people think, medieval people knew that the world was round. They just didn't know how you got round it. Um, but they, um, Mandeville gives a very clear account of this and um, a medieval or late 15th century annotator has written roundness of the earth so that's what they've kind of got from this so which is not really about belief it's more about what lesson can you retain from this um in the 
16th century and 17th century, Mandeville's fortunes are somewhat divergent, that some people regard Mandeville as a very good geographer in modern terms. Um, Samuel Purchase, for instance, um, a very influential early modern travel writer, um, described Mandeville as kind of the best Asian geographer, I think, or best African geographer, best Asian geographer. Um, but other people, um, Ben Johnson, in a play he wrote called The New Inn, um, mocks people who read things like Mandeville as kind of fools and um, these are seductive follies that people are engaging with. Um, so I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a real, uh, it's, re- it's really hard to, to, to gauge that. What I would say in terms of medieval readership is that lots of Mandeville's sources, like the saints' lives he takes from um, the Golden Legend, um, or biblical paraphrases that he takes, um, and evidence from um, pilgrimage locations, these things are totally canonical, and they're the kind of things that sustained popular belief um, in medieval Europe and would have been very uncontroversial, I think, and would have been accepted. So things like some of the relics that Mandeville talks about um, would, were, were things that were commonly written about and would not have been so controversial. Um, in terms of the marvels, again, lots of these marvels were taken from the bestiary, um, which was a very popular um, in a widespread sense, um, Christian book of animal law. So this is not so much about do you believe that there's such a fruit as a vegetable lamb that grows on trees and has a baby lamb inside it and you can eat both the fruit and the lamb. It's more about what lesson can that tell us, either about the world or about ourselves. And, and in that case, actually, that's something that Mandeville has quite a lot of fun with. That's when he meets the people who have the vegetable lamb. He, he says, this isn't a wonder at all. We have something as wonderful at home, and this is barnacle geese, which grow on trees. And that's something he's taken directly from, from the bestiary. Um, and so I think lots of those things would have been familiar motifs and would have had a moral lesson attached to them. So it wasn't whether you believed in the vegetable land, it's what you took from the vegetable land. Does that make sense? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Now, you mentioned um, just before working with a particular man, mm-hmm. Middle English manuscript mm-hmm. as the basis or as one of the prime bases for yep. your translation. Yep. And you mentioned also in the uh, text itself that you worked with uh, the defective Middle English version yep. of the insular text. Yep. So how did you decide or why did you decide to primarily work from that version to, to create your translation? Okay, so there's no... Text. There's no authorial text. We don't have a perfect original text which we can associate with the author. What we've got are several different manuscript traditions, all descending from a lost archetype. Manuscript traditions in French, Anglo-French, and English. Now, um, what I decided to do, rather than trying to find the original manuscript or what's closest to the original manuscript as editorial theory and procedure would usually expect you to do. Instead, I chose the most important manuscript in terms of the reception of Mandeville, and this was the, the un, un set of manuscripts, and this was what's called the defective version. It's a very rude name for it. <laughs> um, and it's called the defective version because it's missing a um, an account of Egypt. And um, Basically, what happened is in the archetype of the defective group, a choir, which is a constituent booklet of a manuscript, had got lost, which contained the account of Egypt. And so you jump in the defective text 
um, from uh, an account of um, the Sultan, and the last sentence in that is the Sultan um, also holds the Caliphate, which is a great thing for the Sultan. It's like saying in our language that he is Lohua, the king, and then the text jumps. So the next sentence, this valley is so cold. So it kind of doesn't make any sense. But again, medieval people, did that didn't bother them. They repeated that mistake um, and they just skipped straight to St. Catherine's in Sinai, which is where the text then goes. So that's why it's called the defective version. But this was the most popular and widespread version of Mandeville in Europe. It was by far the most widely read text, partly because it was then the basis for the um, printed editions in English. So it seemed to me that we should take the audience, we should put the audience back at centre stage here, that this is the kind of idea of the world that more people had. So, it, you know, you can iron out the mistakes and errors as we identify them in a medieval text. But really what you're doing then is forcing a modern perspective onto the medieval text. So what I wanted to do was find a text which was widely read um, uh, and um, had been influential for those people like you know Shakespeare or Thomas More or Chaucer, the people who the kind of Mandeville they would or may have been um, exposed to, um, and keep some of those mis- many of those mistakes in the text because they are where it's, the text is often most interesting. And I can talk about a few of those examples in a minute if you like. But um, so I chose the defective version, and this is basically an English version, um, which was circulating from the late 1370s, certainly. So, you know, very early on, um, and probably before, um, certainly before 1385. And I chose um, a manuscript in Oxford, in the Queen's College, um, which was my basic text, and that's what I did. But then I read this Middle English text with a Anglo-French text. Um, so there were points where there were... Um, The sense wasn't quite clear to me about what the text was saying, and I read that with the French, and I I included a little bit of extra stuff from the French as well, interesting things. So it's really a a synthetic um, version. Um, But it's basically the the version that most people read. And then, as I said, it was the the basis for Richard Pinson's printed edition, which was the main English um, edition. That said... You could do 20 different versions of Mandeville. You know, there's huge um, additions in the Danish and Northern German versions, um, in the French versions. And well, I mean, one of the other attractive things to me about the, this Middle English version was it's reasonably economical. So the, it's actually shorter and more brief than the French version. There's a lot of extra information. But, you know, I thought for a general audience, they don't necessarily need that. And that's not what the... You know, that wasn't the version that really took off in the medieval market. Um, and, yeah, I'm not pretending at all that it's a complete critical edition. That's not the purpose of it. It's uh, you know, All translations are themselves new versions. Um, and it's, it's an edition based on what a, kind of a representative version of the Middle English and like, medieval French audience might have had. You just gave us a great um, little tantalizing tidbit there when you mentioned that you could talk about some of the um, errors that you found or some of the most the more interesting bits. To, can you? Yes, please. Yeah. That would I, I mean, be great. I should say to stuff, I don't regard these as errors at all. Sure. I don't regard, you know, it's, I don't regard these as errors whatsoever. But I'll give you a couple of 
um, things which cause me lots of, um, you know, lots of difficulty in terms of how to translate them or when to correct them, if you like. So, um, well, this is a good example is um, when um, Mandeville is talking about a very famous medieval relic, which is the Holy Foreskin, which is Christ's foreskin. There were a number of these relics around medieval Europe, <laughs> probably enough. <laughs> Obviously, um, there could only have been one real one, if, if any of them were real at all. Um, and um, this was a, there was a Holy Foreskin relic in France at a place called Charroux, which was a popular pilgrimage site, and that this is well known in medieval Europe. But in Mandeville's text, in the French text, um, Mandeville talks about how the foreskin was given to Charlemagne by um, an angel, and then Charlemagne took it to Aachen, or Aix-la-Chapelle, at his, at his um, imperial seat, and um, then it was taken um, to another place to be venerated. And the French text says, this is the middle, sorry, the middle French text says, En sur temple, est-toi Charlemagne, contre les angels, les portales, les présents, notre Seigneur Jésus Christ de la circoncision. So in this temple was Charlemagne when the angel brought him the present, um, from our, um, Lord Jésus Christ from the circumcision. Et il la porta à Aix-la-Chapelle, and he took it to Aix-la-Chapelle, or Aachen, et puis Charles Chauve, so, and then um, Charles the Bald, the Holy Roman Emperor, had it taken to Poitiers and then to Chartres. So that's what one, that's what the main Anglo-French text says. So it says it's the present, le présent. Now this is clear from the manuscripts, a mistake by a scribe for what appears in other manuscripts, which is le prépouce, the foreskin, which appears in lots of manuscripts. So what did people, you know, what, what did they make of this word prépouce? turn into a présent. But then other scribes turn into le présence, so the presence of Jesus Christ. Um, and someone else turns it into le prémisse, le prémisse, um, which is the premise of Jesus Christ. Someone else turns it into la prophétie, which kind of makes religious sense because medieval Christians understood the circumcision as a prophecy of the crucifixion, as the first letting of Christ's blood by the Jews. Someone else turns it into le nombril, the navel, which is not a mistake you want to make. Um, and someone else turns it into la circoncision of Jesus Christ. So they understood the circumcision as the thing which can be brought to Western Europe. Is this making sense? Yeah, yeah. So basically, it seems that in the French manuscripts, there's a confusion over what the actual foreskin is and what the word, perhaps what the word prepus means. In the English manuscripts, it says, and in this temple was Charlemagne when the angel brought him the prepus of our Lord, our Lord when he was circumcised and after King Charles that bear it to Paris. So it's a similar account, but uses the word prepus, prepaus. And this word is only found in Middle English when it's translated from Latin or French. It's not a word that m m people use in Middle English. They use foreskin if they're talking about this part of the body. Um, so... Um, did the Middle English scribe know what they were talking about here when they put prepus in there? Um, it's very interesting. But to move on from these kind of details, the perhaps more interesting bit is where they say the foreskin is then stored. So um, the manuscript in French says Poitiers of Chartres. Other manuscripts say Aix-la-Chapelle and in Liège. 
Um, another one says, in a chapel, une chapelle, um, de Liège. Some say in Rome, at St. John um, Lateran. Um, and so the manuscripts have this foreskin in all different kinds of places. And actually, historically, these were places which had claims to the Holy Foreskin. So you can see this is a kind of ground zero of um, who's got the real relic going on in manuscripts. And that's a really nice, interesting story you can trace. Exactly, you know, these very precise moments of um, ownership of religious narratives going on. Um, in the English manuscripts, it just says King Charles took it to Paris. Um, or sometimes they say Chartres. What nobody says, none of the manuscripts, is Charu, where the actual foreskin was. So, to get back to your original question, what did I do here? Well, I kept what the Middle English manuscripts say. They say Paris or Chartres, so I put Paris. That's where a 15th century reader of Mandeville would have thought this foreskin was. So, it's not up to me to correct them, and it seems to be very patronising of the historical people we work with of you know, correcting their errors. So I kept that as Paris. Um, another example would be an account that Mandeville gives of a um, place near Jerusalem, where the church of um, St. Chariton, at, uh, uh, now in a place called Wadi Karatun, near Bethlehem. And um, he says that there's a painting there which shows how people grieved when he died, and it's an affecting thing to see. So he says there's a, you know, a, a a moving visual depiction of the death of St. Chariton. Um, and this is in keeping and quite unsurprising in later Middle Ages where people frequently look on pictures and are moved by them in their kind of affective religion. They have a relationship. They're moved by gazing on the painting. But this is actually an error by Mandeville who's translated compagnati, skeleton, into um, the word for painting, which is, you know, is kind of similar to that. Um, and um, but again, it seems to be patronising to change this back into St. Chariton's skeleton when what the medieval audience believed was there was a painting. And, that's, and, you, and actually, that, as I said, that makes more sense to late medieval religious um, affects where you'd perhaps sooner gaze on a painting and be moved by it than gaze on a skeleton and be moved by it. And so there's, there's literally hundreds of examples like this where... Um, some editors would iron out the errors, and I've, I don't regard them as errors. I've kept them in as examples of medieval popular belief, which goes back to your question about belief. Um, I, you know, it's not about my belief, it's about what the text kind of sets up as, as belief. And in, the, in, the, in, the, in our lives, we accept all kinds of things as true without having seen them for ourselves. You know, I believe that New Zealand exists. I've never been there. I merely rely on pictures and texts about New Zealand to tell me that it exists. It might all be a great big cultural fabrication. I'm, sorry, I mean, I, I mean, I'm being flippant. Um, but, you know, um, I just chose New Zealand because it's a long way away. But, um, you know, the, but that medieval people, this is what they had to apprehend the world. It's not for me to do violence to that and kind of correct them out of their beliefs. And this actually raises a, a, really, a really nice issue that you deal with at a kind of meta level um, in the introduction in looking at this text as a kind of an example of 
what you call proto-cultural relativism. Mm-hmm. Kind of, and you, you, so you invoke... Gosh, that sounds like jargon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's, it's a way of kind of bringing the kinds of issues that you're talking about in the practice of translating the mm-hmm. text, right? Being sensitive to different kinds of yeah. ways of construing belief and what that means, let alone what it looks like, and sort of taking these issues and also using them to understand Mandeville's practice himself, whoever you know, yeah. whoever he was, if yeah. he even was a single person. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's an important move that situates the kind of work that this translation yeah. does, and that potentially this book, you know, Mandeville's work does in the context of what are right now larger debates about um, sort of cultural relativism, mm-hmm. um, cosmopolitanism, yeah. um, and that sort of thing. Can you speak a little bit to those issues? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I'm really glad that that's come out from this. One of the things which may surprise readers of Mandeville is that he's perhaps not as racist as we might think medieval people were. He's certainly fascinated in other people's sex is fascinated in other people's customs, other people's religious customs, and other people's bodies. Um, particularly clothes. He's very interested in the way people dress. And he's rude about lots of people. He's very rude about the Tatars. And he says they're, kind of, they're dirty and they eat dogs and rats and cats and that kind of thing, which again was something that medieval artists like to illustrate in the manuscripts. Um, the one group he's very, he is noticeably um, judgmental and um, rude about is the Jews, um, which is in keeping with perhaps the Christian um, frame of the book. Um, and actually the English, the Middle English text plays down some of the anti-Jewish sentiments of the French text, which expands on that. Um, but in general, um, Mandeville's text, I'd say, is defined by its curiosity um, about the world. The perspective actually becomes... Jerusalem is the centre of Mandeville's world, and it's the centre of the medieval world, and the text starts off by saying Christ chose to die at Jerusalem because it's the very centre of the world, and this reflects popular um, belief. But in Mandeville's texts, in Mandeville's text, St. Albans, where he set off from, ends up looking marginal and peripheral, and is at the very edge of the world, um, and is kind of, you know... It's merely the place that the text kind of takes its point of departure and point of return. Um, really, what you see are um, a whole you know, a, a, a spectrum of different ways of being through a Christian lens. So when Mandeville talks about Islam and talks about the mythical Christian prince Prester John, who resides in, in Asia, um, and when he talks about Greek Christians and Georgian Christians... He's really interested in then how do they relate to Catholicism? How do they relate to the Latin Christianity? Um, and what do they look like through my kind of, I suppose you could call it proto-anthropological perspective. Um, and he's, he is perhaps surprisingly respectful of Islam um, and um, perhaps surprisingly respectful of um Greek Christianity. He also gives a very moving and um, uh, very beautiful account of the Brahmins, what he calls the Brahmin, um, and the kind of um, the sages of of India. Um, and you know, I think perhaps it speaks more to our prejudices if we expect people in the past to have been as judgmental and as racist 
as you know we would like them to be, or as perhaps as as we are. That said, I mean Mandeville does talk a lot about skin colour, um, and there is an emerging racial theory in the 13th and 14th centuries, um, and lots of the ways Mandeville describes um, people reflect medieval um, kind of physiognomy. So when he talks about people at, um, in, in the Far East, and um, he talks about them having um, small eyes and wispy beards, um, and that this is a sign of dishonesty. And that goes back to medieval Christian um, books about how to interpret a face correctly. Actually, in one of the French manuscripts, somebody has written there um, in the margins um, something like a sign of um, cruelty and dishonesty. But that's taken as entirely interpretative of facial signs according to a language of um, facial um, interpretation rather than um, a kind of race theory um, that, uh, as we'd have it in modern, in, in, in kind of a, a modern idea of race theory. Um, yeah, and, and one of the things that the text does on on the whole is that you know, medieval travel was supposed to be teleological and directed on one place. The, the proper pilgrimage was supposed to be um, all directed towards Jerusalem or Canterbury or Santiago or wherever your end point was, and you weren't, weren't supposed to wander by the way, as medieval people talk about it. And the sin of that, of curiositas, of being curious rather than being directed, you know, your heart and your mind on on where you're going. Um, and one of the things that Mandeville's travels does wittily is get to the centre of the world, Jerusalem, and carry on, which is a kind of very sinful and, um, you know, uh, you know, naughty thing to do, and, give, and he gives in to curiositas. And that's what the text, in a way, does. It's even though it's kind of framed as a journey towards paradise, which is a paradise which is never reached, um, really, um, the text could be said to be showing the limitations of uncurious travel and um, what you've got, you know, that, that the mind properly directed can be the mind that, that's curious as well. Speaking of curiosity, so you've talked a little bit um, for us about some of the more challenging moments mm-hmm. in translating the text. What were some of your favorite moments translating the text? Were there particular aspects of the process of translation that were particularly fascinating to you or gave you particular joy or what you were really interested in? I mean, I, I love doing the whole project, and, I, and I, I really mean that. And I think one of the things which makes it a great read, but also made it nice to translate, is that the text changes register, kind of changes gear all over the place. So you don't get, it's, it's quite hard to get bored with it. So, you know, when I was you know, doing the account of um, Armenia, then suddenly Mandeville goes into a totally different mode and talks about the Sparrowhawk Castle, where he gives a, you know, a, 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 an account of a beautiful lady who lives there and knights have to come and um, watch her Sparrowhawk. And it goes into a totally different mode. So you've gone from kind of geography and pilgrimage into romance and fantasy, and it's this kind of sexy story about this beautiful lady and these kind of um, knights who keep on failing in their task. Um, and so it kind of it kept me interested because it, it, you know I had to keep on changing gear I think one of the things that was very interesting to me was trying to work out what to do with measurements um, this was um, one of the um, this was both a kind of crux 
but it was also great fun because there were no standardized measurements in in medieval Europe. Um, and in a travel narrative, one of the things that um, you've got to at least pretend to do is tell your reader how long or how far they've got to go. So I had a lot of fun with this. I mean, one of the things which came up and I think is really fascinating, is very fascinating in terms of pilgrimage, is that medieval distances tend to be measured both in what we'd call time, the length of time it takes to get somewhere, but also in terms of space. So the number of footsteps it takes to get from one place to another, you know. And so there's a very human experience of distance. Um, and actually the word journey just means a day's travel. It's how long it takes a person to travel in a day, um, from French jour. Um, but so one, of, one of the words that Mandeville uses a lot is the bow shot. Um, and he talks about something being in 40 bow shots, away. And when I first came to translate this, I was thinking, how can I possibly render that to a modern audience as, does he mean, you know, should I put that as feet and inches or in metric or, you know, what? And of course, I've kept it as bow shot. But what he means by a bow shot is itself extremely variable and vague. He means some, he's, it's a bow shot is the distance it takes an arrow to fly or the time it takes for the arrow to fly there. So the flight of an arrow or the distance of the shooting of an arrow. So it's it's a very, um, how would you say, yeah, physical understanding of a body being in space and time that gives measurement. Um, likewise, he talks about leagues when he's talking about sailing by sea. And that's just an imprecise distance, meaning a long way by sea. You know, it just means a very long distance. Um, and um, he, you know, we still use feet, and we have a specific definition of what a foot is. But in for Mandeville, he just means the length of a man's foot, not a woman's foot. Medieval def- medieval measurements are very clear that they're about a man's foot. Um, but you know, so when he says it's twelve footsteps from one church to another church, he means it's a man walking with 12 feet um, footsteps. So I found this very much, you know, a lot of fun thinking about. He also talks about currency a little bit, um, about things like florins. Um, florins were the, the kind of currency, um, one of the currency exchange units of the medieval Mediterranean. And England did have a florin just for a few years in the 14th century. This wasn't an accepted precise amount of money, like a dollar or a pound sterling. This was a a kind of an ex- a general exchange. Um, so there were lots of w- words like that. How do you translate those into something meaningful? And how do you keep both the um, the auth- authenticity of what they're trying to get at, whilst also making clear that they're um, about distance? Another thing I had lots of fun with, with was fabrics. Um, words for fabrics that Mandeville has. Um, he invents or kind of uses all these words that we don't really have anywhere else um, for luxury silks. He's very interested in what people in Central Asia, in fabrics you can get from the silk route. Um, and um, that was a lot of fun researching bits of textiles and, and that kind of thing. But I, I did enjoy doing the whole thing. There's also a great, um, fascinating... Uh, three accounts that are in the text itself, but I think there are actually perhaps more in other versions, the alphabets. Yes, yes. Um, This is something which is very distinctive to 
to, um, to to Mandeville's book that in the Middle English version that I've you know in, in my edition um, this includes the three alphabets which are most common um, which are the Coptic Saracen and Hebrew alphabets and these appear in very many manuscripts and it's it's really it's really fascinating that people that readers want that they were taking seriously the idea of um, these foreign languages. But in the Mandeville manuscripts, on the whole, there's 11 alphabets, 11 different alphabets appear, including um, Pentaxwarian, which is the language spoken on the mythical isle of Pentaxwar, which is Neo-Prestigeon's language. Um, and, um, and something I should make very clear is that the alphabets aren't correct according to modern ideas. And so again, I've, I've reproduced these with their errors, and my the editorial team at Oxford University Press were brilliant at, at working with the medieval manuscript and then um, um, creating um, these manuscript these alphabets on the page. But in the Egyptian alphabet, um, this is there's no relation to the Coptic alphabet. Um, but the, the letters he the words he uses for the letters are Thomas, Inchi, Chinook, Dynam, N, Few. Gomor, R A B C D E F G. So they follow the Latin alphabet, um, and the Saracen alphabet is equally wrong. But one of the things that's um, that's that's very interesting is that his Hebrew alphabet um, is is um, is not correct. Um, but it the the word the letter names he gives for it are, are more or less correct. Aleph bet gimel he vav zayin ex yod kaf lamed mem nun samech e pe lad kaf fur sun tau laws. Now some of them are wrong, but that clearly has a memory of a connection to somebody who knew Hebrew, who did this. And plenty of people in 14th century England who were Jewish knew Hebrew from um, Christian Hebraism. Um, but um, in some manuscripts, that Hebrew is more or less correct, and the letter forms given are more correct in others. It's totally fantastical. So there's a really nice visual moment on the page when you see these different alphabets. But that also goes back to this idea of um, kind of cultural rel- relativism that um, that there there are these the, the, you know the, the the text is interested in these three um, you know in, in, in other in the ways other people construct the world and they make sense and after Mandeville has described the Saracen alphabet he says another difference in their language because they speak so gutturally is that they have four extra letters as we have in England in our speech two letters more than they have in their ABC that is Thorn and York which are called Thorn and York and these were common features of 14th century English Thorn stands for the sound th, th, and yog stands for the sound y, or y. Um, and Mandeville uses this alphabet then to look back on himself and to kind of take a lesson about himself from this and how English looks to the Saracens as well as how the Saracens look to us. And that's a really nice moment of, I think, a kind of cultural interaction. Well, Anthony, we've taken up a lot of your yeah. time. Thank you so much. Not at all. I've enjoyed it. There's Me too. Um, there's so much in the book that's so fascinating. And, you know, the hippo men that eat other men and griffins and the great Khan of Cathay yeah. who has Latin mottos and dragons and yeah. lots of natural history and medicine. It's full of wonderful, wonderful 
stories and accounts. And as you've um, already been talking about with us, and as is definitely clear from the book, it's also very thoughtful on many levels as we consider how to read and consider text and authorship and production and circulation and things like this much more generally. Is there anything in particular about the book um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about that you want to make sure to mention for listeners, especially listeners who may either be unfamiliar with the book or certainly haven't had an opportunity to see this particular translation? I think I would just close by saying that we're used to thinking of 1492 as this kind of watershed moment when the idea of the world changes. And Mandeville's travels really help us query that, both in knowing that Columbus had this book with him, but also in busting some of the myths we have about medieval ignorance about what the world was. And to think that, you know, the medieval world, from a European perspective, was very big. It went all the way from Kanbalik, what's now Beijing, all the way to Iceland, um, Newfoundland, um, and um, and North Africa, you know, it, it, there was a lot of world there to to write about. And Mandeville makes that clear, but also that the I think it really is helpful for thinking about discovery because the language that the first people to the America, first Europeans to the Americans, to the Americas used is full of the same language that Mandeville uses about surprise, abundance novelty, um, uh, prodigies, all these things that Mandeville's interested in profoundly inform, I think, what then becomes our own modern kind of world of, of travel. And I think that's something that, you know, um, something that Mandeville deserves to be taken seriously for. And so now that this translation is out and available... It's in the world. It's, yes. it's in the world. <laughs> yeah. What's next for you? What project is inspiring you right now? Well, the project I'm working on here at the National Humanity Centre is um, connected to Mandeville. I'm working on a 15th century English pilgrim called William Way, who wrote a remarkable um, account of his two journeys to Jerusalem and his journey to Spain, to Santiago de Compostela, um, which included lots of practical information about how to make a pilgrimage, but lots of information about um, sort of moral information and mnemonic information about how to remember your route. But also, interesting for me, is that lots of Way's account was taken from Mandela. So even though Way had been to these places, um, Mandeville's travels was very informative, were very informative to him um, in terms of how to actually render that into narrative. Um, another nice thing about Way is that when he came back to England is that he built a kind of um, facsimile of the Holy Land at a church in Wiltshire on Salisbury Plain um, in which he put some books and some maps and some wall hangings and some representations of Jerusalem made in boards out of planks. Um, and so it was a kind of theme park of Holy Land, by which he could think about the world abroad, and that's directly kind of connected to what Mandeville's Travels is doing, is that you can that in the Middle Ages you could make a virtual pilgrimage, you could read and think about travel with just as much efficacy as actually undertaking it yourself, um, and um, and wonder, novelty were and and the miraculous some of the defining things which unite religious culture and vernacular 
and reading kind of romances and that kind of thing um and i think both way and mandeville are connected to that so that's how i've got into this well that sounds great too well thank you again Anthony, thank for you. taking the time and best of luck with your next project thanks a lot carla you've been listening to new books in history thanks so much and we'll see you next time